Duncan's defection, and Walker's woes. You know, it was the most disappointing ballot I've ever stared at in my entire life. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just listening to the podcast for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Patricia, this is one of the last times I can say this. I'm coming to you from a car on the campaign trail in Georgia in 2022. I'm sure I'll be in the car for plenty more podcasts, but not necessarily on the campaign trail in 2022. Um, But this is the final, the dying days of the four-week runoff campaign. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We can't wait to get there. Herschel Walker versus Senator Raphael Warnock will know an outcome, hopefully, in just a few days. Yes, we see the light at the end of the tunnel, and we don't think it's a train. We can't be (laughs) sure, though. (laughs) There's a bar in the Caribbean called the Bitter End, and that's what I call this phase of the runoff, is the Bitter End. Can we go there in a couple of days? (laughs) We should go there. My whole family is ready to to, to join us. Um, Well, coming up in today's episode, we're going to talk about Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan's defection on national TV away from the GOP camp. We'll talk about Herschel Walker's many stumbles in the final days, but hey, he still has a very good chance of winning. We'll also talk about long wait times at the polls. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Okay, let's talk about this story, Patricia, that emerged just a few uh, just a few hours ago, really. Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, we know he's long had very major concerns with Herschel Walker, but he took to the airwaves of CNN to announce something very important. Here's what he said. I showed up to vote this morning. I was one of those folks who got in line and spent about an hour waiting and, uh, you know, it was the most disappointing ballot I've ever stared at in my entire life uh, since I started voting. You know, I had two candidates that I just couldn't couldn't find anything that, that made sense for me to put my, my vote behind. And so I walked out of that, that ballot box uh, showing up to vote, but not voting for either one of them. Listeners of this program should not be surprised that Jeff Duncan is not a supporter of Herschel Walker. He has advocated for a post-Trump GOP 2.0 vision for a very long time. He's criticized Herschel Walker very often. And he's talked about kind of a, a new sort of mainstream direction the Republican Party should go into closer to Brian Kemp's vision than Herschel Walker's vision. But at the same time, Patricia, as you noted in the jolt and we've talked about and, and, and covered in our stories, this represents more than just Jeff Duncan. Jeff Duncan is sort of a voice for that group of 
split ticket voters, and in Jeff Duncan's case, those soft Herschel Walker supporters, those Republicans who didn't ever want to vote Democratic, but also just couldn't bring themselves to back Herschel Walker because of his history of violence, erratic behavior, bizarre stances on the campaign trail. I'll throw in there the fact that he won't outline any of his stances or talk to the media who actually cover his campaign. All those have kind of wrapped them together to distance themselves, to ostracize a lot of mainstream Republicans as well as swing voters. Yes. I think there were two stories happening at once with this Jeff Duncan piece that we did this morning. First of all is Republicans' heads exploding all around Georgia who kind of hate Jeff Duncan personally. And these are people who work in the Capitol. They've had friction with him. They feel like this is totally self-serving. When I started covering the Capitol, I thought that I did not know who people were talking about. They just kept talking about Pretty Boy on CNN. <laughs> they were talking about Jeff Duncan. There's just a group of Republicans who feel like Jeff Duncan is not one of them, has been going after a TV contract, is just in it for himself. However, let's let's put a pin in that. Those are just personal reactions and just personal antipathy from a group of people he used to kind of share space with. To your point, Jeff Duncan is one of hundreds of thousands of Republicans who feel the exact same way. And that really is the danger for Herschel Walker and his campaign. It's possible for Jeff Duncan to be both trying to get a CNN contract. There's nothing wrong with that. But also speaking sincerely about the fact that he is a Republican. He is looking for a piece of the party that he can be a part of. And there are lots of Republicans like him. They don't feel drawn to Donald Trump. In fact, they feel repelled by Donald Trump. And with Herschel Walker, they just can't get there. They can't vote for him. So the fact that he said this out loud on CNN, I think, is the greatest offense to most of those people who are <laughs> upset with him. But that doesn't mean that Jeff Duncan isn't being honest in what he's saying. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't represent a, a really significant and important piece of the Republican Party. And it's not just about this election. It's about the issues that this party chooses going forward. And it's about the candidates that they put forward for higher office. There is a group of Republicans who are very, very dissatisfied with the direction of their party. I think that Governor Brian Kemp wing, the kind of the mainstream Republicans who had tons of success here in Georgia this year, that's the place where Jeff Duncan is happy. This other wing that is more Trumpy, um, more comfortable with Herschel Walker, there's an important group of Republicans who have made their choice and it's not with that that slice of the GOP. If that becomes the dominant slice of the GOP in the future, they're going to have major problems. And Patricia, when you say hundreds of thousands of voters, uh, Republicans who are skeptical of Herschel Walker, that's no hyperbole. 200,000 voters backed Governor Kemp but did not back Herschel Walker. That, that alone was the difference between an outright win uh, and a, a dominant win, really, and uh, the, the runoff situation we're seeing right now. And so those split-ticket voters are at the core of Senator Warnock's strategy these last few days, the, the, frankly, this entire campaign as well as trying to energize liberal voters. He has Barack Obama coming in. He had Dave Matthews a few days ago. He's had all these sort of disparate elements of a strategy because he has enough money to go and pull all these different threads at the same time. But, you know, his campaign is also aided 
by the fact that Herschel Walker has had all these late stumbles. I mean, look, we've been talking about Herschel Walker's issues the entire campaign, and yet a big, huge chunk of the electorate still has backed him, either because they thought a vote for him is better than a vote for a Democrat, or because they didn't believe any of the uh, the allegations or accusations against him, or they thought he was a redeemed person. Um, and that could all be the case for a lot of voters who, who truly believe that. But at the same time, even senior Republicans right now are baffled. Baffled might be the understatement, but they're flabbergasted at this final closing strategy from Herschel Walker. He went off the campaign trail for five days over Thanksgiving break at the same time where Senator Warnock had more than a dozen events. And that's not something you see when a candidate is in a basically a deadlocked race. I mean, it's not like Herschel Walker is winning by 20 points here. It is a very, very tight race according to the, the handful of polls we've seen. We've seen Herschel Walker focus and his campaign focus on his former football coach rather than the, any sort of narrative they want to drive home about Senator Warnock right now. He's talking about vampires and werewolves on the campaign trail rather than Joe Biden or other issues that, that you know the Republicans would rather hear him talk about. And he's taken an even more arm's length approach to the media. We've talked about this in our show. Um, we've never talked to Herschel Walker in a one-on-one -on -one interview. I've talked to him in scrums. This is a uniquely bizarre situation, I think, for you as well as me. I've covered Georgia politics for uh, two decades now and have, you know, candidates who, who like the AJC, who don't like the AJC, doesn't matter. We, we have relationships with them. We talk with them. We talk with them behind the scenes. We talk to them on the record. We have rapport with them. Um, we still have a rapport with his can campaign, of course, but this candidate, I, I have very little interaction with. I, don't, I know you're the same, Patricia. And just the other day, his campaign started putting even more barriers between him and the media. They don't comment on anything. They don't comment on policy stances or, or issues at all. It's just a stump speech. And they've started putting up barriers to block media from even shouting questions at him at campaign events. And that, that pretty much shows you the state of this campaign. It's hunkered down. It's a bunker mentality. And it is trying to avoid questions, even questions that could be easy answers for them about Joe Biden's policies. I mean, uh, hey, do you do you condemn <laughs> this racist, white supremacist, anti-Semite who's meeting with Donald Trump? No answer. Yeah. And, you know, to take it one step further, um, when the Walker campaign has been unhappy or displeased with the coverage that they're getting from their candidate, they then attack reporters personally when reporters can't ask Herschel Walker a question, can't do sit-down interviews. And so somewhere between we're not going to talk to you and how dare you write that is the mindset of this campaign. And I've cut, you know, I've been in involved in politics for a long time and then covered politics for more than 15 years. I've just never seen a candidate like this or a campaign like this. I've never seen a candidate go dark for five full days right before a campaign who did not have COVID um, or, you know, or at least say that he had COVID. Um, I've never see, seen a candidate refuse to talk to their hometown newspaper for no reason. Are he and his campaign being straight with voters about who this candidate is, what he would do in office, what voters would be getting if this is who they voted for for Senate. You know, by contrast, Raphael Warnock's campaign has been accessible. He's been accessible to both reporters and to um, voters. He's not always transparent. And I think that we have worked to hold him accountable when he has not been transparent on issues. Um, 
But it's just a totally different campaign. So voters, I think, are making an informed decision about Raphael Warnock, whether they like him or not. At least they know where he stands on on most issues. And if not, it's not because we didn't ask him the question. Um, with Herschel Walker, it's just what is this balance between what you remember about him on the football field versus what he you might see of him on Fox News? It's just there's a very little connection between him and anybody who's not inside his rallies at that moment. And that's a problem. And despite all these missteps, gaffes, issues, out of some of them are out of his control, like uh, Senate control going Democratic's way, which deprive Herschel Walker of a key argument to skeptical Republicans that a vote for him is a vote for a Republican-controlled chamber. Despite all these issues, uh, and despite the fact that, that early voting seems to be decisively heading in Warnock's direction, Herschel Walker still has a very real chance of winning even Democrats are, even optimistic Democrats are still cautiously optimistic because of a big key element, which is election day voting tends to go decisively towards Republicans. Herschel Walker beat Senator Warnock on election day voting by double digits. And if that trend holds, and if you see a huge election day turnout, we could be talking about Senator Herschel Walker. After a quick break, we're going to talk more about election turnout and hear from your questions. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with the other host, Patricia Murphy. And we are two of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. And Patricia, get this. Right now, for a limited time, you can get six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That includes all the access you want to the AJC ePaper daily newsletters, including the Jolt, for less than a dollar. Sign up today at subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast for six months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you'll always know what's really going on. And what we know is going on right now is a surge to the polls. More than 1.1 million people have already voted. I just drove by on my way to a campaign event to a, past a tremendously long line of dedicated voters in Midtown Atlanta waiting to, to cast their ballots. But we should all put this in context. Even though there's record-breaking uh, early voting days, we're also trying to funnel three weeks of early voting into just one week of mandatory early voting. So yeah, turnout is higher, but yes, it's also far behind what we would have seen had we had three weeks of early voting. And Patricia, it's really hard to decipher what this will mean, but we know that the voters in Democratic counties 
counties that Senator Warnock won are showing up in much higher proportions than voters in counties that Herschel Walker won as of this taping. And there have also been a number of changes since SB 202, which is why we have this shortened, condensed early voting schedule from 17 days to five. Also, it's become a lot harder to do mail-in early voting. So we don't know what these numbers mean and what this high turnout means. We know, first of all, obviously, it's far fewer um, early in-person days. But how many of those voters would have been mailing in their ballots. We don't know if this is truly a surge in turnout for this runoff or if these are just displaced voters all trying to smush themselves into five days of early voting. We just don't know. And I have to say, Mark Nisi, who is our elections reporter, is just so brilliant at analyzing all of this because after the general election, I said, so Mark, like, what's the What's the verdict? Was, did SB202 make it harder to vote, easy, you know, easier to vote, mass voter suppression? All of these accusations had been going around. What do you think in the end this means? How did SB202 change things, make things worse, make things better? And he said, we don't know. The election's not over, you know. And so he is such a huge proponent of waiting for the data to come in, obviously waiting for the election to finish itself. And then we can look back and see how different it was, how much better was it, how much worse was it. And I think these lines are going to be a big point of contention in the next legislative session because we had had multiple rounds of voting where we did not see these long, long lines. Not all that's changed. Part of that is because of changes in SB 202. Some of those changes were necessary also. So, you know, I think the lawmakers are going to have to take a few bites at the apple until they feel like they've gotten it right on when and how to vote. Yeah, I don't know what the solution is to the long lines other than giving counties more resources to open more advanced voting sites. Because when you condense a nine-week runoff to a four-week runoff, that means you have to condense early voting because you can't even get the ballots printed out until the election certified. And that happened a couple of weeks into the runoff phase. So it's a quandary. Certainly, we've also seen ramifications of SB 202 when it, when it comes to mail-in ballots. That was prime, one of the primary effects of SB 202 is tightening those mail-in ballots, those ballot drop boxes, um, limiting those, tighter deadlines for absentee ballots. Of course, the voter ID signature on absentee ballots. All, all the mail-in ballot effects we're still seeing play out as well. Uh, Patricia, I think this is a good place for us to get to our first question from this week's listener mailbag. And you can now call the Politically Georgia podcast hotline anytime. Leave a question and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. And producer Shaney B, we have a little problem because after we announced that all of your interns got promoted to yes. news assistance. Kevin Riley found Chief out. Kevin Riley texted <laughs> us at like 6 a.m., maybe an hour after the podcast posted. He said, what in the world? I never approved of this. So we have a mea culpa. Like being called into the principal's office, right? Sorry, yeah, guys. worst time. So Sorry, I guess guys. we have to demote the interns. <laughs> Kevin will send you a lump of coal for your Christmas stockings. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, that's the kind of guy he is, though, you know? 
That's just yeah, the way just, it goes. That's just, just the way it goes with Riley. Just in time for the holidays, <laughs> he demotes a lot of news assistants back That is to obviously a huge joke. Kevin Riley is not only our boss's 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 <laughs> boss's boss, he is so nice. <laughs> and he would never demote an, no. a, a new news assistant, but only Shane. Uh, but Shane would. <laughs> You're demoted. That's why so we Shane, brought you here today, Shane. You get that tough task, and you also get the tough task of introducing our first caller. All right. Our first caller is Kyle from DeKalb County. He's been seeing these long voting lines and has this question for you. First, I want to thank you all for everything you do. Politically, Georgia is my favorite podcast, and I never miss an episode. The reason I'm calling is to ask about the lines for early voting. So I voted at Emory today, as I always do, because they do a great job. But today the wait was a little over an hour and a half. I saw a number of people leave the line because the wait was so long. And anecdotally, I've heard that most other Atlanta polling locations have also been slammed this week. I'm curious if you've been observing such long lines in the exurbs and more rural counties as well, because if this is an Atlanta-only problem, then we can probably draw conclusions about how this may impact the final vote count. Thanks again, and go dogs, Greg. Go dogs, Kyle. Thank you so much for the question and for the uh, the shout out to Politically Georgia. Uh, we love that you're such a loyal listener. Okay, so we have seen long lines in the exurbs too. I mean, look, we led the show off with Jeff Duncan. He said he lives in Forsyth County. He said he waited in line for an hour before getting to the polling place, uh, seeing both those names on the ballot and then just turning tail and <laughs> leaving without casting a vote for either one of them. So we know that um, there are long lines in the exurbs and rural areas. I've been getting pictures um, from voters all over the state. I was tweeting them for a while, but then I just thought it was over. It was it was overboard. I was going overboard with the tweets of pictures of long lines because at some point you also don't want to discourage people from from participating. Um, there, are, the fact is, you know, long lines stink, and it's it, and it takes people who you know, are have the time to sit in line for two, three hours in some cases to vote. And not everyone can do that. But the other hopeful fact in here is that on election day, far more precincts will be open. And so there hopefully shouldn't be two, three hour lines. They hopefully should dwindle to just a few minutes in many cases. But unfortunately, Patricia, both you and I have covered plenty of election day uh, elections where we have seen lines stretch out, not two or three hours, but frankly, six, seven hours, eight hours. There was a the primary in 2020 when I saw voters lugging coolers and lawn chairs as an accessory to vote. And it was one of the most depressing and demoralizing sights I've ever seen because when voters have to do that, and there was all sorts of tech snafus and issues that led to that, when voters have to do that. Uh, it is depriving them of their constitutional right to vote. Yeah, that's exactly right. And yes, so to you know, do the the tiniest bit of uh, looking backward, I waited for four hours in 2016 during an early voting day at the Buckhead Library, and uh, you know, long lines are unfortunately a huge problem now. Brad Raffensperger has talked a lot about how he got the wait times down, how he has this big, beautiful dashboard in his office. And if he was seeing wait times longer than two, three, four minutes, he would call that particular precinct and say, what's going on? What's the breakdown? Let's get that shorter. Um, we have not heard that kind of communication this time around during early voting. We see a lot of communication from Gabriel Sterling saying, wow, look at all these voters who have voted. 
But we don't know how many voters have left those lines. I've talked to lots of people who left the lines like, hey, I was here for an hour. I don't have time to stay here for another hour. So I also think that's going to displace people onto Election Day. And part of Mark Nisi's reporting is that of the multi-million people who voted in the general election, just one million, you know, now it'd be a little bit more than a million, have voted now. So there's still going to be multi-multi-million people who are going to need to vote on election day. So I think people should pack their patience and lawmakers should make a plan to deal with this situation because there had been the expectation that long lines had been a thing of the past once they had sort of perfected technology and put their plans in place. And, you know, the Republicans' own standard was easy to vote, hard to cheat. Well, right now, it's not easy to vote. Can I make one quick PSA really quickly? A a loyal listener of the Politically Georgia podcast, uh, Brian Tolar, reached out to me to let me know and I or just to remind me that if you are 75 years old or disabled, you can skip the lines in Georgia. And that also means if you're in line and you see somebody who is disabled or 75 years old or older waiting with you, just take them up to the front of the line, please, and then go back to your space. Someone will save your space for you. But there is no way anybody disabled or elderly should be waiting in these lines. And there is a Georgia law to that effect, but most people don't know about it. That's a great point. And you tweeted out a story about that for anyone to see. Shani B., what's our second question? Second question is from Rob in Dunwoody. He has a question about this neck and neck runoff. I am calling actually to try to answer my son's question, the six-year-old Elliot, he has asked me, what happens if this race is a tie? And I guess my follow-up question to that is, at what point is it so close that it has to get a hand recount? And what happens there? Just a question as we pass our polling stations and see the long lines and just, uh, just wondering. For Elliot, let Elliot know that Georgia law says that if an election is within 0.5%, there is an automatic recount. Um, That typically is not an automatic hand recount. That's something that is up to the discretion of the Secretary of State's office. And that is something that is actually called an audit, a kind of a a manual audit of those ballots. Um, You can go through those one by one. We do have paper backups for these, but there is an automatic recount, especially, and I don't want to say only if a candidate requests it, but especially if a candidate requests it, then that does happen in Georgia. So this was definitely, this has been a neck and neck race the entire time. And it we don't know of any major factors that have changed that. So, you know, it could be very, very close again on election day. Greg, your thoughts. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Rob, great question from Elliot. I recognize that voice. Um, <laughs> good to hear from you, Robbie. Um, but look, you know, if it is close at all, uh, expect just waves of litigation over everything you can imagine, over provisional ballots, over what absentee ballots are counted, which signatures, which aren't, over decisions to keep the lines open after technological snafus. All these things get litigated in court. We had a glimpse of that back in 2018 when Stacey Abrams, doing that 10 days where she uh, had uh, refused to concede the race and you had all sorts of legal battles over provisional ballots. Of course, we saw that in 2020 with Donald Trump's efforts to overturn Georgia's election and all sorts of pro-Trump lawsuits that all got dismissed from courts. 
at various stages of, of the legal battles. What elections officials always say is pray, <laughs> pray for a clear and convincing win. They don't care which candidate wins. They just want a clear and convincing win so that there's not fighting about, you know, a handful of votes here and there that could sway the outcome of a huge race like that. Okay, Shaney B., what's our third question? Let's take uh, one more. This is Jim in Atlanta. He wants to ask you guys about Governor Kemp's political future. I was trying to figure out why would Kemp be so interested since he's uh, succeeded in being elected for his second term and um, got thinking a little bit more about it. I was wondering whether or not he uh, had his eyes on uh, Senate seat held by uh, our great Senator Ossoff in four years. Just wondering. That's a great question, Jim. And you know, it's funny because we've heard so many, so many times Governor Kemp and his allies attack Stacey Abrams for wanting to use the governor's office as a stepping stone to Washington. Now there's a lot of legitimate talk about Brian Kemp, you know, being a, a potential running mate or even a 2024 candidate. And of course, also being a potential 2026 candidate against John Ossoff. And there's no such recriminations about why are you thinking about the governor's office as a stepping stone? I think there's a couple things at play here. I think first he defeated Stacey Abrams, the, the nemesis of so many uh, not just Georgia Republicans, but national Republicans, as well as defeating essentially Donald Trump in the same election cycle. And so he and his allies feel like right now, while his profile is as high as it is, he's got to strike while the iron's hot. And you never know in two years how things can change. Just a year ago, Brian Kemp was being booed at Republican rallies all over Georgia. And now he's, he's the most popular Republican in Georgia. So they know that all this could be fleeting. And I think they feel like it makes sense to... Um, to take steps right now to take advantage of his popularity. I have no idea in 2024 what will happen. I have a prediction. I, I think I won't be shocked at all to hear him being vetted as a running mate for a potential anti-Trump, you know, non-Trump lane presidential contender. And I certainly think he'll keep alive the possibility that he could challenge you know, Senator John Ossoff in 2026. But Jim, you're right. He has a heavy, tall task at hand, a heavy duty at hand running the state for a second term in which we don't know much about what his priorities will be for the next four years. Yes, Jim, I love this question because I just love rank speculation about people's <laughs> ambitions. <laughs> but so what we do know about Brian Kemp is that he's keeping his political operation going. He's obviously also had his national profile expand immediately the minute he won that race, really because of two things, because he had stood up against Donald Trump without losing Donald Trump voters and had defeated Stacey Abrams, who was probably the most famous Democratic candidate who wasn't already an office holder in the entire country. So Brian Kemp was able to thread that needle so successfully. He got the attention of so many people in the country. And so the Wall Street Journal and a bunch of other publications have highlighted that and noted that and said, wow, how did that guy do that? Also, during his campaign, a number of fellow Republicans came into Georgia to help him. Governor Glenn Youngkin from Virginia, former Vice President Mike Pence. Both of those gentlemen are likely to be seeking federal office in the future. Glenn Youngkin is term limited in Virginia. And so the only way for Brian Kemp to raise money for federal candidates is through a federal PAC. And so um, that's another reason. Uh, that's a way to just to be helpful to people who were helpful to him. And then also, of course, keep his options open. Um, you know, if I was Senator John Ossoff's staff, I would really 
start sleeping with one eye open because I think they already have a very um, not not I'm not going to say a likely challenger, but there are a number of Republicans who, because there is not a statewide election in 2024, the next open opportunities are going to be the governor's office and that Senate seat, both in 2026. I think you're exactly right, and I think they are well aware of that potential. And even look, even if it's not Governor Kemp, you've got Kelly Leffler, you've got Doug Collins, you've got Chris Carr, you've got Burt Jones. Uh, the Republican bench is not lacking right now. Frankly, neither is the Democratic bench. There's a lot of strong Democratic contenders who I could see on the ballot in 2026 also. But we've got lots more time to talk about that. For now, Patricia, let's go to our final and one of our favorite segments, Who's Up and Who's Down? Patricia, who's your who's down for the week? So my who's down for the week is probably Herschel Walker's campaign. They've been feeling recently like they've just been losing altitude a bit. There were the five dark days. I mean, mean, literally, I did not campaign for five days over the Thanksgiving holiday. I was at an event with Herschel Walker up in Dalton yesterday. Only about 75 people, not a great turnout, not a big level of energy, just not a great sign. Just so few days out from Election Day. We're going to end up here where it looks like he will have never sat down with the Atlanta (laughs) Journal-Constitution for an interview. That just doesn't happen. That, that does not happen with any other statewide candidate. In my memory, um, I spent I spent the entire day with Marjorie Taylor Greene earlier this year. So we have lots of people oh, who yeah, aren't always, <laughs> yeah, they're not always fond of the coverage that they get, but they make themselves available to the press. Governor Brian Kemp is another great example. Raphael Warnock, very accessible. So we have candidates who have um, really always been accessible. It's very unusual not to sit down with the state's biggest newspaper or other local newspapers around the state. And so I think that's just uh, an unfortunate way to end up this campaign cycle. I'm going to say my who's down is also Herschel Walker, but for, uh, I agree, but but for different reasons as well. You know, a, a couple of days ago, the former president, Donald Trump, had dinner with a man named Nick Fuentes, who is a white supremacist, white nationalist, racist, anti-Semite, Uh, a vile person. And we heard condemnations from all sorts of national Republicans and state Republicans. Attorney General Chris Carr, incoming Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, Governor Brian Kemp, all of them condemned that meeting with the former president, said that there's no appetite, there's no room whatsoever for that sort of hate in the American discourse. Governor Kemp said that it was un-American, right? Um, uh, Messages that some said didn't go far enough, but others said, hey, you know, we're glad that their Republicans are condemning this sort of meeting. Silence, from Herschel Walker. It, it to me, it's the easiest thing that a Republican, any candidate, can do is condemn basically a Nazi sympathizer for meeting with the former president. But as he has ducked pretty much every question recently, at least that we've thrown his way and that other media outlets have thrown his way, he also ducked that one and just basically his campaign said he won't be commenting on that. And so. Not the message that I think he wanted to send to a lot of Georgia voters in the final days of the race, but hey, that was his choice. Okay, Patricia, who's your who's up? So my who's up are Georgia Republicans. Um, If you had told Georgia Republicans in 2021 at the beginning of the year that they would be wrapping up this campaign cycle with an almost total 
dominance of the statewide races. They've won so far eight of nine statewide races. Um, Governor Brian Kemp won by a gigantic margin. They go into the next year in control of the governor's office, state house, state senate. They, To your point, they do have a long and strong bench. And I think they're wrapping up this year in a way even they would not have predicted on such a high note. And, you know, whether they win or lose the Herschel Walker race, that's almost beside the point because they have had a year where they are just totally dominant in a year when most Republicans didn't have a great night. So it was not a great night nationally for Republicans, but Georgia Republicans were the real outlier in the positive way for them. So they are my who's up. I can do the flip side of that because you could say Georgia Democrats are also (laughs) up because they come into Tuesday with a chance to basically hold Pat. You know, hold their Senate gain from 2020, hold Sanford Bishop's seat down in southwest Georgia, gain a handful of seats in the state legislature. And, you know, obviously they lost the, all those other races, but in an, an election climate that was always going to be very unforgiving for Democrats, you could make the case that they're, they're coming out of this with a chance, uh, a surprising chance of, of holding some of the gains they've made over the last few years. But my real who's up is going to be Georgia voters. Uh, more than a million voters. They're out there in long lines in some cases. They're out there in cold weather. They're out there early in the morning, late at night, wanting to make their choices known, wanting to cast that ballot. And it hasn't been easy for a lot of them, but they're still doing it. And they still have more chances to come on Friday, the last day of early voting, and of course on Tuesday. So we hope if you haven't cast your ballot yet, you go and do that. We here at Politically Georgia would love to know what you think of our podcast. Please click the link in today's episode description, answer a few questions, so we'll know how to make this podcast even better. Well, thank you so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,